Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thousands are dead in the priceless treasure called Morocco in an earthquake. Thousands more injured and many, many missing. May God have mercy on the souls of the departed and preserve those digging in the rubble where today they found a newborn baby still alive. And the queen is 12 months dead. The queen is dead, but does the king live for very much longer? Politically speaking, of course, I mean. I wish him a long life as plain Charles Windsor. And the emperor is definitely dead. Macron has an entire stadium as he kicks off the Rugby World Cup in Paris, and it all goes pear-shaped. Well, the shape of a rugby ball in any case. East Palestina still doesn't have clean water following the derailment of a toxic train there more than six months ago. But Joe Biden's going to build a railroad right across the continent of Africa. And, of course, we'll be talking about Elon Musk, the man that saved the world. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. It is the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. The Queen died exactly 12 months ago, and King Charles, who had been waiting rather longer than he probably had fancied, stepped into her shoes. Judging by our poll tonight, a year on from the Queen's death, has King Charles filled her shoes? Not many believe that he has. Ham-fisted, to say the least. Thick-tongued, to say the least. Stupid, well, many people think so. His endless devotion to the World Economic Forum, to Charles Schwab, and to every piece of greenery, quackery, and wokery known to man, woman, or indeterminate has not endeared him to his subjects. Neither has the massive pay increase that he has pocketed without so much as a buy your leave or a single blush. And his decision that Camilla, his second wife, whom he promised would never be queen, to now dub her the Queen of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and such remaining dominions that carry his face on their stamp have been told that she is Queen Camilla. Not many takers for that one, even fewer actually than for the kingdom of King Charles. Has he filled her shoes? Well, my good friend, Scouser Lar, up in Liverpool, of all places, says, yes, entirely. We now have a second parasite 
living off the public purse for doing not very much. And he has a point, at least so far as Charles is concerned. The emperor, Emmanuel Macron, had the gall, who advises these politicians, to go out onto the pitch, to a podium, to kick off the Rugby World Cup, even though he knows that at least 75% of the people of France despise him, only to be booed and jeered by what sounded like every last one of them. His remaining 25% supporters were clearly not present in the Stade de France because every French voice was raised and they roared, not the Marseillaise, but get out of here, you bum, at little Macron. The people despise these regimes. The German regime fell this week to 17% support in the public opinion polls in Germany. And I'm wondering who those 17% could possibly be. In France, in Germany, in the United Kingdom, where we have a prime minister constantly on the road, draped in garlands of flowers, genuflecting to Indian potentates everywhere he turns. I saw him on his knees to Sheikh Hasina of Bangladesh, the dictator of Bangladesh, just a few minutes before coming on air tonight. Rishi Sunak, or as Americans will know him, Rashid Sanuk, is a nowhere man. John Lennon could have written that song about him. The question is, when will the men in grey suits in the Conservative Party make a decisive move against him? Or have they decided that they are going to go quietly into the good night of a Keir Starmer landslide that may well keep the Tories out of power for a decade or more? Joe Biden actually went to a podium in front of all the journalists and grandees of Vietnam today and said, it's evening in Vietnam, isn't it? You remember the film? He said, good morning, Vietnam. Well, it's good evening, Vietnam. A note to younger viewers, good morning, Vietnam, starring the late and great Robin Williams, was a film about the United States illegal and annihilating invasion and occupation of Vietnam in which millions of Vietnamese were slaughtered by the high-powered weaponry of the United States of America, of which Joe Biden is, for good or ill, the latest president of the republic. Instead of coming on his knees in obeisance, seeking forgiveness from the people of Vietnam, Joe Biden danced on their graves. The only saving grace could possibly be that he had no idea where he was 
and what was the import of what he was saying. He'd just come from the G20, in which he mispronounced the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the United States' erstwhile closest ally, rapidly receding in its friendship from the United States, just frozen its production of oil in direct collaboration with the Russian Republic. A deal hammered out on the phone between Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and President Vladimir Putin. He went on to say that bin Salman would not be speaking today at the conference, even though he'd actually already spoken. And his speech and the words therein, the warnings therein, had clearly gone over the head of senile Joe. Every day I look at videos that make it more obvious to me than it was the day before that the Democrats cannot possibly be thinking seriously of running this man, not this November, but next November for another four-year presidential term. You've heard of the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Joe Biden leads the gang that cannot walk straight, cannot walk up aircraft steps, cannot walk upstairs, downstairs, or along a platform in the right direction at the right time. It must be a game. They must be planning to anoint someone else. And it sure as hell can't be Kamala Harris. The New York Times asked today, why is Joe so unpopular? Like anybody needs to ask that question. But in the small print, it became clear that if Joe is so unpopular, Kamala is even more unpopular. And so a wild card must be being prepared. Some are speculating it'll be Michael Obama, but she's gone off with an apparent state of distress following the revelations, if they be so, in the Tucker Carlson interview with the man who claimed he twice had sex and crack with the soon-to-be President of the United States, then Illinois State Senator Barack Obama, in the wake of the publicity about Barack Obama's sexuality. Michael Obama fled to Spain to live with a friend of theirs and his husband, which doesn't sound to me like the kind of thing you would do when you were just about to announce that you're running for the nomination, to put Barack Obama, this time as the missus, back in the Lincoln bedroom or wherever else she'd make him sleep. That all sounds far-fetched to me. So some other wild card must be being prepared. 
Perhaps it's the governor of California who has turned the Sunshine State rancid with scarcely a store left unplundered by feral mobs who have decided, as mobs tend to do, that the offense of shoplifting is no longer on the statute book that the emaciated police forces of California are incapable or maybe unwilling to intervene. It's not that they're out on the street checking the endless lines of publicly defecating citizens on the streets of Los Angeles. It cannot be that the police are otherwise busy clearing the tent cities that are the fruits of the Sunshine State's endless Democratic Party governance in the state. Mind you, it could be worse. You could be on the streets of Philadelphia, which are alive, barely, with zombie-like figures staggering in various states of stupefaction, hooked on fentanyl and other opioid substances, living homeless, jobless, and hopeless. Such people must have perked up at the promise made by Joe Biden that he's going to build a railroad right across the African continent. With what? Not with the increasingly worthless American treasury bonds. Saudi Arabia alone in the last three months has ditched $80 billion worth of U.S. bonds. China is doing the same. The stark, brazen worthlessness of American paper currency is ever more vividly exposed. Who's going to build this railroad across Africa? Why don't you just get off the backs of the people of Africa and let them build their own railroad with a partner, China more likely, that has already built thousands of kilometers of railroad in the Belt and Road Initiative in Africa and elsewhere. But the empty hollowness of the Democratic Party has not stopped them moving might and main to crush the possibility of humiliating defeat for Joe Biden in the Iowa caucus primaries coming up in just a few months' time in the winter snows. Not only have they pulled out of the early caucuses in New Hampshire, in Iowa, they have said that anyone who does participate in those primaries will have any delegates that they win as a result of those primaries will be null and void and will not be counted at the convention. And the worm is beginning to turn. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. 
who will surely win those primaries in a landslide has said that he will now have to look again at his plan to be the Democratic Party's candidate when the election comes along. And so he will might, so he will should. A third party candidature, or even a switch to the Republican Party, giving him, I'm certain, second place at least in the race to be the Republican nominee, guaranteeing him a place on the ticket. Trump, Kennedy, unstoppable, unbeatable. That's the way to go if you want to derail the toxic train that is the Democratic Party of America. I have time only to deal with one other matter, but it is a weighty one indeed. I won an award this evening, which I must share with my first guest, Garland Nixon, but I'm going to make an even more substantial award to Elon Musk. My usual caveat, I've never met the man. He's not the sort of fellow I could ever see myself hanging out with. But I believe that Elon Musk is the man that saved the world. And more importantly for him, having saved the world, his card is now marked, his businesses in grave danger, and his life perhaps under threat. When Elon Musk refused to extend the coverage of Starlink being provided free of charge to the Ukrainian military, to the area above the Russian naval fleet in Sebastopol, when he refused to be a party to a Pearl Harbor style attack on the massed fleet of the Russian Navy. He saved the world. Because if that attack had happened, if the Russian Navy, like the American Navy at Pearl Harbor, had been decimated, then a state of war would immediately have existed. Not between Russia and Ukraine, but Russia and Ukraine and all of its allies who had made that Pearl Harbor attack possible. He didn't switch off Starlink over Sebastopol as hundreds of mendacious journalists have spent all week lying about. He just refused to extend the normal free coverage that he was giving to the Ukrainian military to absolve himself, at least, of any responsibility of the consequences, almost certainly, in the end, nuclear consequences of such a dastardly attack. It would have been a day that lived in infamy for Russians, in the way that the attack on Pearl Harbor still resounds in the minds of the people 
of the United States. In so doing, he was immediately placed on the target list of those who have murdered so many good people, journalists, the children of philosophers, that's right, poets, writers, murdered on the kill list of the death squads of the Ukrainian regime. But all this happened months ago. Why has it now been resurrected? I'll tell you why. Joe Biden made it very clear, well, as clear as anything ever is from Joe Biden. It was halting. It was stuttering. It was stammering. It was subliterate, to be sure. But it was an unmistakable warning that the United States intended to move against Elon Musk and move over these months. Uh, they definitely have. His SpaceX business, his Starlink business, his Tesla business, his Twitter business are all under full spectrum attack from agencies of the United States government, its satraps in the European Union, and so-called N, so-called G, so-called O, NGOs in the United States. The most significant of which is the Democratic Party front organization, the so-called ADL, which defames all in the name of being anti-defamation. Elon Musk, about whom I'll talk to my fellow award winner, Garland Nixon, in just a minute. Stay tuned. It is the mother of all talk shows. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. I have never been an award-winning broadcaster before. In fact, I've only won one other award as the best debater in the British Parliament, given by the Spectator magazine. Wouldn't happen now, I'm sure. Uh, and I was astonished and humbled 
uh, to be awarded the Serena Shim Award for Distinguished Services in Broadcasting. Serena Shim was a very courageous journalist who was mysteriously killed in Turkey in the early days of the jihadist invasion of Syria, facilitated, funded, and armed by the big imperial powers at that time and their then Gulf satrapies. Serena was courageously reporting from the front and met her death in quite extraordinary circumstances. I was on television at the time uh, of her demise and spoke often in support of her work and in memory uh, of her loss. I'm now a Serena Shim award-winning broadcaster, as is my first guest, because he and I are jointly holding that prestigious award. And so I welcome Garland Nixon with a special warmth this evening, Garland, from one award winner to another. I'd like to say I've never been in better company uh, than with you tonight and as one of the distinguished alumni uh, of that uh, award. Uh, give me a word on that and then I'll ask you about Elon Musk, if I may. Yes, um, I would like to, uh, you know, say that I am highly honored. I'd like to thank um, the many people involved, the people particularly over the Black Agenda Report and the Black Alliance for Peace and all of the people who are involved. Um, you know, when we do um, when we cover the news um, as journalists, oftentimes, you know, we don't think of the dangers. We don't think of the, the reality that these powerful entities around the world are opposing us. Um, we just say what we believe is true. And um, I'm always surprised when someone um, recognizes it or someone sees that as anything other than just, you know, a human being feeling as though they have to say the things that are critical and I have to um, expose the, the contradictions of empire as I see them. Amen to that. Now, you and I have a checkered history uh, with uh, Elon Musk. Neither of us would describe him as our BFF. Uh, but he has made Twitter more free for most people uh, than it was hitherto. He has refused to cooperate with the deep state more than the previous regime cooperated with them. And now his life is at risk and his businesses are under threat, including the business of Twitter itself. And the latest casus belli, or two of them, uh, is that somehow he has facilitated a rise of anti-Semitism uh, on the Twitter platform by not banning people like thee and me from making legitimate criticisms made, by the way, by many brave people in Israel itself of the crimes of the Netanyahu government. But most significantly, he's under real threat because he refused to allow his Starlink to facilitate a Pearl Harbor attack on the Russian Navy 
in Sebastopol that would almost certainly have triggered World War III. I think in these circumstances, we've got to say at least two cheers for Elon Musk, don't you? Uh, absolutely. You know, I think that, and as you know, I'm, you know, thrown off of Twitter right now and working towards taking action against Twitter. But I think part of the things, uh, the th one of the things that people have to remember when people like you or I are still getting some level of, um, uh, of, of censorship on Twitter is that it is a giant bureaucracy and that before Elon Musk took over Twitter, um, it was stuffed with spooks. I mean, it's loaded with people who are former CIA and FBI and NSA, et cetera, three letter agents people. So even if um, Elon Musk intends to do the right thing, uh, they made sure that they stuffed it with uh, people that would make it very difficult for him to do that. Additionally, another issue that Elon Musk has, as would basically any of the um, oligarchs now, is that there is a um, there's an elimination of the line between public and private. And in order to be to have a major corporations and to be uh, as powerful as Elon Musk, it is, you know, almost a requirement that you are are involved with federal contracts. So he made a decision, which was a business decision, which the free marketeers tell us um, as a businessman, he has the right to make. And um, there are people who are basically arguing that he should have been an arm of not just the U.S. government, but of the U.S. State Department and of a, you know, let's face it, a, a, a fascist and, and very violent um, Ukrainian leadership. So he did the right thing. And now um, we are all watching um, neoliberalism in action where a, there's a punishment for a person who does not allow their business to be a tool of the you know most extreme people in, the, in, in our government. It is actually a definition of fascism uh, that it becomes a corporate state where the corporations and the state machinery become one. And this is a point uh, Glenn Greenwald was making earlier today. Where does it say anywhere in the Constitution, in the law, or in the tenets of capitalism that the owner of a private business has any kind of obligation to carry out what are effectively military orders from the government of one of the states in which his business operates? That's fascism, you know. And in fact, if you look at the origins of neoliberalism in the 1970s in um, uh, in Chile, um, the people who started that neoliberal project, as it were, um, installed a fascist leader and a fascist government because the, the, it is the nature of neoliberalism that it needs um, totalitarian state control. And it only makes sense that it has reverted closer and closer to its roots as people like you and I um, provide a platform um, for uh, the average working person to um, to question what the empire is doing, to question their, their so-called leaders, um, these leaders get angrier and this system has to uh, crack down on us. And I think um, Elon Musk is learning the hard way that maybe the system that he believed in as a so-called free market system, a system that he um, was very successful in and made a lot of money of, has some significant flaws and it will turn its fangs and claws on him in a second if he refuses to um, adhere to the, again, the clearly fascist totalitarian um, uh, aims of, of, of the U.S. empire and the Biden administration and the neocons. I'm expecting that. Uh, now, let's turn to the latest perambulations. 
uh, of your president. Uh, I don't know why he goes abroad so much. It seems to me that between his vacations and his overseas trips, it's no wonder that he hasn't visited East Palestine that he promised he would visit six months ago and where thousands of people still don't have clean drinking water in his own country, never mind a walk down Zombie Avenue in Philadelphia or L.A. Uh, he uh, is promising uh, infrastructural developments in Africa whilst your own infrastructure crumbles. But the, in a way, the comic, although it might not have been funny to the Vietnamese, the, the comic Nadir was... Uh, the latest one earlier today when he asked the Vietnamese if they remembered the film Good Morning Vietnam before bidding them a good evening Vietnam. A film about the United States genocidal mass murder of millions of Vietnamese. He made a joke out of it. It's, it's becoming almost unbelievable. I still think we've got a way to go, but they cannot be serious, as McEnroe would say, running this guy again, a year come November for another four-year term, surely. Yeah, well, um, I do not believe that they're going to run Joe Biden. I believe that he is unable, um, cognitively unable to, um, you know, to go in front of crowds and to do the things he needs to do in stadiums and cheer, get people to cheer. And then he would ultimately have to debate the um, the the uh, Republican um, opposition, which they're trying to throw in jail. Um, and he's not competent to do that. So I believe they are looking for a way out for Joe Biden. And I believe that the House of Representatives um, impeachment inquiry, inquiry will provide them the offer if they need for Joe Biden. But but let's think about Vietnam. Where is he going to go? Is he going to go to Laos? Is he going to go to Cambodia? You know, again, the contradictions of the U.S. empire as uh, wh whoever would represent the Biden administration tries to build their um uh, coalition against China, uh, country after country that they go into, as I said, Laos and Com Cambodia, Indonesia, they go to countries that the U.S. has literally facilitated geno genocides in. So many countries in Asia, the U.S. has facilitated genocides in. There's There aren't a lot of places that we can go that won't um, uh, you know, basically get the same feelings or the same results. We can't talk about the U.S. can't talk about the history. What about uh, South Korea and our ally Japan? Genocide there, uh, 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 rape and murder, et cetera. So the U.S. is trying to bring together a coalition of countries that have either um, genocided, attacked or oppressed um, another group of countries, and they're trying to bring them together against China, another country who has suffered from colonialism at the West. I think, again, the, the contradictions are obvious, and I believe that the Biden administration is going to have a very difficult time building their anti-China anti coalition simply because of the historical context. Just like in Africa, the historical context is there. Uh, Vietnam told them, uh, bluntly, uh, during Biden's visit, that uh, they have no intention at all of joining an anti-China concert party, which uh, I must tell you, the U.S. administration had invested some hopes uh, that they might, because of historical enmity uh, between China and Vietnam. Russia, the Soviet Union, was the main ally of Vietnam during that long a period uh, of struggle. But the extraterritoriality of it all, 
doesn't boggle the minds of enough people, you know. I saw Blinken uh, or his spokesman warning North Korea against selling weapons and ammunition to Russia. This is the same North Korea that the United States decimated almost in my lifetime, finishing in, in 1953. I was born in 1954. The smoke was still in the air from the 20% of people in Korea that were killed by the United States. And the United States has placed North Korea under the world's most draconian sanctions, at one point forcing the people literally to eat grass. I saw them do so. And they think they can give orders to North Korea about whom it should do business with, or even more extraordinary, Garland. The State Department accused a Chinese company of breaching sanctions by selling semiconductors made in China to another Chinese company. This was a breach of sanctions. God knows how they keep track of it all. But just ponder the chutzpah of that garland, threatening a Chinese company for selling Chinese products to another Chinese company. You know, as the world looks at the Biden administration, I know at times they want to laugh and at times they want to cry because of the uh, the nuclear threat from these lunatics. But it, one thing is obvious, the Biden administration is holding on to a time when the United States, you know, say the 1990s, early 2000s, when the U.S. had the um, the economic infrastructure around the world to make these kind of demands and that countries really had no choice other than to um, adhere to the to the to the demands of the U.S. US empire. However, one of the reasons the US is so mad at China and so angry at China and Russia is because they they are they have provided and are building an alternative economic infrastructure that allows countries to look in a, in a different direction. So they're living in a world that, you know, as is, has been said, um, neurotics build castles in the sky and psychotics live in them. Um, the Biden administration is living in a castle in the sky in which they can still tell everyone what to do. And, and fortunately for the rest of the world, that castle is crumbling and there are new castles of economic infrastructure, bricks, SEO, et cetera, that are being built. And it's not going to happen overnight. But within, I'd say, five to 10 years, the U.S.'s um, economic coercion methods will have pretty much dissipated. Any news on Michelle Obama? No, um, I, well, I'll put it like this. I, I will say this. Uh, you know, one of the things that um, is constantly pushed is that Michelle Obama will be running for president. You know, when we hear her name now, that's what everyone says. Are they going to go with Michelle Obama? And I don't think the system will allow her to run. If you look at the kinds of people that are allowed to run as president, it's very class based. They're generally people who come from the top one percent. They went to Harvard or whatever, but they went to boarding schools, et cetera. Michelle Obama comes from a working class family. 
I believe that the people in power are concerned that at some point she could revert to her roots or that she could view the world through the context of the working class. I mean, you know, if you go to the socialist countries, Maduro was a bus driver. Uh, Pedro Castillo was a farmer. In the socialist countries, generally, you'll see people who come from the working class. I believe that the people in the neoliberal um, leadership are very much afraid of the working class. And even though she's married to Barack Obama, I don't think they would take a chance. So I think that's that. my thoughts on, on, on uh, Michelle Obama is all about whether or not she runs for president. And I don't see the system looking at a, a person of working class origins and seeing that as a viable option. So it's a no from them. Well, from one Serena Shim Award winner to another. Long live her memory and long live free journalism and broadcasting in the world. Garland Nixon, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. A year on from the Queen's death, has King Charles filled her shoes? Yes or no? Get your votes in. You've got an hour or so in order to do so. Let me take a quick break and I'll be right back. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. A very nice email from Tracy to onair at moats.tv. Hello, George. Love the blue suit. It matches your eyes. Tracy in Chelmsford. Thank you so much uh, for that. Now, you know, I really rely on the support of the people who support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. So I prioritize uh, messages from them. Matt Roach says, thank you for your ongoing work. I've been a fan of yours since your stance before the pathetic war hawks in the U.S. Congress. Thank you for sticking your chin out time and time again. And on the poll, Ben, who's a Moats graduate, which is a very prestigious level of supporter of mine on Patreon, he points out, unless Charles turns into a cute little elderly lady. I don't think he ever will. My good friend, Scousalar, another Patreon friend too, says the king has filled the queen's shoes very well in the sense that he too is a pointless drain on the taxpayer who does next to nothing. Ali A says shameless freeloading individuals, all of them, whilst the poor and middle class have been made poorer and poorer. These elite have turned into vampires. They are totally irrelevant to my life. And John H. says, Charles is a globalist, WEF fool. The Queen at least held herself apart from such divisive issues. So, no. Well said. The revolutionary government in Niger, not to be confused with the far-from revolutionary government next door in Nigeria, uh, showed what you can do if you even begin to demand fairness from your former colonial overlords. Niger is quite happy to go on selling uranium to France, but not at the 80 cents per kilogram that it used to. France will now have to pay 200 euros per kilogram if it wants to keep doing business with Niger. Now, that's only a first step. Uh, We have to be sure that the New riches uh, which flow into the Niger treasury are fairly and wisely and efficiently distributed throughout the country amongst the masses on infrastructure and the rest. That is 
another matter. But it's a hell of a blow to French globalized capital, which is facing one rebuff after another. But not enough people in Africa are paying attention uh, to the even bigger elephant in this particular room. I refer to the United States of America. Now, all eyes were on the judiciary in Nigeria over these last few weeks. I myself played a very small part, but a part nonetheless, in focusing eyes that would not hitherto have been waiting on the outcome of a decision uh, of a court in Nigeria. All eyes were on the judiciary because it turned out that the ultimate American Manchurian candidate was somehow placed in the presidency of Africa's most populous country, most rich country. He was the ultimate Manchurian candidate because the Americans knew everything about his past as a bagman to the drug mobs in the city of Chicago. They even confiscated half a million dollars from him in his days on the street, washing money, carrying money for the drug barons, the gang bosses in gangland Chicago, Illinois. So who better to have as the president of Africa's most populous country at a time of swirling change on the continent than a man who literally depends for his very life on you. And that is the state of affairs where the illegitimate president, Tinubu, has been fraudulently imposed on the people of Nigeria and all eyes were on the judiciary. Surely the courts would see sense and send the bagman on his way. Did it work out that way? Well, let's hear from the horse's mouth. Nigeria's young and best correspondent, analyst, and commentator, David Hundian, joins us here again on the mother of all talk shows. Well, all eyes were on the judiciary, David. How did it work out? Not very well, because um, as is now abundantly clear, um, the judiciary, as it's generously referred to, um, signaled to the world, and to Nigeria specifically, that um, even the, the, the letter of the, of the law, the Nigerian constitution itself, is um, essentially a, a series of suggestions um, that basically in the interest of protecting the status quo, um, the judiciary will essentially make up rules that don't exist on the fly. They will nitpick technicalities which make very little sense to anyone both within and outside the system. And they will basically work their way back from a predetermined answer to basically to, to arrive at a series of contrived questions. And the only purpose of doing all of this is to subvert justice. So what is, what is abundantly clear now is that even going forward, um, even after this inevitably goes to the Supreme Court, um, the, the, the outcome isn't going to be any different because the Nigerian judiciary has made a mockery of itself to just to give you an, an, an idea of just how much 
of 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 a mockery that we're talking about now. Some of the 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 the, the judgments, the rulings that were pronounced on the day were that, for example, um, on the issue of um, his the supposed president's uh, drug dealing forfeiture in in the United States, where as you mentioned earlier, he forfeited the sum of four hundred sixty thousand dollars to the U.S. government, being proceeds of heroin trafficking. The ruling completely sidestepped this issue, made no attempt to engage with that whatsoever, and instead referred to a letter which was supposedly written uh, from the U.S. Embassy to the Nigerian Inspector General of Police in 2003, supposedly clearing somebody known as Bola Ahmad Tinubu um, of any sort of criminal records in the U.S. Meanwhile, the, pre- the person who is sitting as the president, his name is Bola Ahmed Tinobu. So, and, you know, if you know anything about law, you'd know that such a thing isn't a simple typo, right? It's a whole different person that was requested. You know, the details of a whole different person were requested. And obviously they got back the answer they were looking for, which is obviously, you know, there is no such thing because no such person exists. And that's what the supposed judiciary relied on 20 years later in 2023 to basically pronounce him innocent. Uh, the, the, the judgment said based on that letter, he had he had no case and that the the the, the forfeiture is a is a civil matter. It's not a criminal matter, so it's fine. That's what the um, the supposed uh, uh, chief justice of the Nigerian Appeal Court uh, ruled. So what has become abundantly clear is that, as it stands, um, Nigeria has no law. Nigeria has a series of um, written and codified suggestions, but anything and everything, depending on how much money you have, depending on how much influence you have, anything and everything will be allowed to stand up in court, no matter how stupid, no matter how fatuous the argument is, everything can fly. Nigeria essentially is no longer a country under law. Nigeria was never a particularly lawful society to begin with, but this, I think, has driven the final nail into the coffin. As I said, shortly after the ruling was was put out, as it stands now, if I stand in the middle of the road in front of a, a, a TV broadcast camera, and I'm holding a gun and I shoot people dead, and you know this is broadcast to millions of people in 4K UHD quality. I will be fine because I can go to court now. One of the rulings that was given, for example, was that um, the vice presidential candidate, who was actually not eligible to run because he was um, he was he, um, he had been registered as a contestant for another political office concurrently, which is illegal. Um, the ruling given was that well, you know, as long he he didn't do it intentionally, so it's fine. So essentially, now what that means is the maxim which any lawyer anywhere in the world is raised with, which is that ignorance is no excuse under the law, has for the first time been turned on its head in Nigeria by the appeal court. So essentially, as I said, if I shoot a bunch of people dead in the streets in front of a TV camera, my argument in court can be I didn't do it intentionally, uh, you know, <laughs> so I'm free to go. Another ruling that was given was that, well, the um, the drug dealing forfeiture, the the um, entity involved was uh, was the president, the president's bank accounts, and not the president's person. So the, uh, the president's bank accounts forfeited yeah. the money. That, and not that's the one. Uh, the yeah, that that one actually made me laugh out loud. Uh, the yeah. judges said that the money that was forfeited was a criminal, not the person who had the money in his bank yeah. account. 
In other words, it was these naughty $460,000 that are deserved of condemnation, not the person who had them resting in his account. Uh, To continue your analogy, uh, you could claim that all these people you shot were not shot by you, they were shot by the gun. And apparently that would fly because that's that's the um, that's the depth that we sunk to in the year 2023. So at, at this point, I think it's it's become clear now that if we're hoping for any kind of redemption from within the Nigerian system, it's probably not going to happen. At this point, I think it's the Nigerian people themselves, if they have any fight at all left in them, they have to look at what their contemporaries across the border in Niger have done. And basically make up your minds, uh, are we going to consent to be mocked in this manner permanently? Or are we going to do something and stand up for ourselves? Um, currently, there's a sort of there's a sort of mass um, paralysis sort of going around where everyone is like, oh, if you go out, they're going to shoot us dead in the streets, which they did three years ago. There's going to be a massacre, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you shouldn't be sitting in the UK, wherever you are telling people to go out on the streets. Why don't you come home and lead the protest yourself? You know, which, I mean, I've done that already before. But anyway, you know, apparently I'm expected to (laughs) come back and, you know, to to, to do that again. And generally, it it just seems to me as if, I think until the people themselves decide that they have had enough, um, this mockery is going to continue. Because clearly, um, Tinubu himself has no intention of of letting go. He clearly has no, um, no iota of shame. Um, personal embarrassment, anything like that. He genuinely doesn't care. And the judiciary um, has also made it clear that they are just as shameless as he is. So essentially, the entire Nigerian establishment has made it very clear that it lacks a single modicum of shame that is willing to do anything in public. I mean, if you watch the proceedings, you'd have seen toward the end, there was, a, I think, the only female justice on the panel. She actually went into, she raised her voice and went into a rant I was screaming at the petitioners and essentially berating them for bringing up the petition. I was basically um, saying things like, did you think that um, threats from social media would, <laughs> would, would move us to give another judgment? And it was, it was almost as if Tinubu himself was speaking to the petitioners. And this is a judge. So it's become clear that the Nigerian system, if you know, there is no Nigerian system, it, it's been completely captured. So the Nigerian people themselves at this point need to decide if they're going to consent to be led by their inferiors or if they're going to do something about it. Ultimately, I don't think there's um, it's, a, it's a decision for a journalist or for a politician like Peter Obi to make. I think it's the Nigerian people themselves who have to make that decision, if they ever make that decision. It's just putting off for another 12 months. Uh, it's not even going to be up to 12 months. I think it's, it's like just because I think the rule is that 60 days from the ruling, which was this past week, is is a deadline for a verdict from the Supreme Court. So we're looking at sometime in November, potentially. But yes, I, I definitely think the Supreme Court, I actually think the Supreme Court is even less likely to deliver a sensible verdict than the appeal court. Because, you know, the, the, the chief justice of the Federation, by the way, his name is uh, Kaede, Kaede Ariwala. He is actually a very close ally and a personal friend of Bolatinimu himself. You know, and uh, rumor has it that he was actually placed in that position due to lobbying from Tinimbu back when uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, Buhari was, was the president. So um, I think anyone expecting a sensible verdict 
from Tinubu's close personal ally is, you know, it's not being realistic. I don't think it's going to happen. I think there's going to be an even bigger mockery at the Supreme Court. What I am looking forward to, however, is seeing what his ruling on the forfeiture would be. And why I'm looking forward to it is that in 2014, this exact justice, Kaede Ariwala, delivered a ruling, which is, you know, which has been circulated very widely, a ruling stating that uh, forfeiture is itself um, it, uh, the act of forfeiture after after the commission of a crime constitutes in itself some form of criminal conviction, and that forfeiture is proof of criminal activity. That was a ruling that he delivered. So I'm looking forward to seeing him essentially roll back his own earlier ruling and state that forfeiture is something else now, that, okay, it's the bank accounts that are responsible and not the individual. I'm looking forward to him doing that. I know he will do that because clearly the Nigerian judges have no shame. He's definitely going to do that, right? I I, have, I completely expect him to do that. But I want to get it on camera, So which, which is why I said I'm really looking forward to doing that. It's, it's going to be like a seminal moment in Nigerian history, the point when it became clear to everyone that from the mouth of the Chief Justice of the Federation that Nigeria has no law. It's not a free-for-all. Everybody go outside and do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter anyway. We're looking forward to that. Nigeria, you know, Nigeria is a great country. It's people, great people, and uh, so numerous, so populous, so hardworking, so prosperous. But they've never produced a political leader of the stature of some of the smaller, poorer uh, African countries. Why do you think that is? I think that's because um, the very the, the manner in which Nigeria came to be and, and in which it came to gain its independence was remarkably different from, from its neighbors, for example. So Ghana, for example, there was, uh, there was your conventional sort of... Um, um, anti-colonial independence struggle. And then there was this sort of charismatic leader that came up out of that struggle, a guy called Kwame Nkrumah, who remains a sort of legendary figure in Ghana till today, even though he's long dead. And the country sort of coalesced around a, a, a common vision for what an independent future looks like. In Nigeria, there was no such thing. Um, it might surprise you to know that in, I think with the year was 1955, when um, the motion for independence was first moved, in, in, the, in the then Nigerian House of Parliament, fully half of the country actually opposed the motion. That might sound surprising to anyone who is familiar with African post-colonial history. Why on earth would members of an African parliament oppose um, independence? But that's the very sort of peculiar makeup of Nigeria, that the way it was put together. I, I'm not a fan of blaming the British for things that they did 60, 100 years ago. But unfortunately, that's just the reality that the way Nigeria was put together by the British made it such that there was a very deliberate uh, power imbalance between um, ethnicities which had almost sort of equal populations. So it was sort of like the classic divide and rule thing. So instead of having a country where maybe there's a clear majority and people can sort of coalesce around a shared vision or, you know, even if it's equally sized groups, they were sort of left to sort of figure it out on their own. Instead, these three groups were sort of picked against each other by the British, which is like the classic empire-building way of doing things, so that you get to remain in charge because these three idiots are fighting themselves. That's how Nigeria was put together by the Brits, unfortunately. And all these years later, unfortunately, Nigeria still pretty much remains very much the way it was in the 60s, whereby even though Nigeria has close to 
500 plus ethnic groups. They had like basically three majority populations, and they essentially, till today, remain at loggerheads. They're not really able to agree on anything economically, politically. So the country remains sort of in a de facto state of war, which is why every time there's an election, people die because it's actual ethnic warfare. Every time it's time to select a new leader. Part of the reason why uh, uh, Peter Obi's candidacy was such a phenomenon was because he comes from the Igbo ethnic group, which for, for you know, if you're familiar with the civil war history, um, rightly or wrongly, Nigeria's first ever coup, military coup in 1966, was labeled as an Igbo coup. And as a result of that, the Igbos were deliberately politically sidelined for many decades in the Nigerian political mainstream. There has never been an Igbo head of state since 1966. And he seemed to come out of nowhere. And for the young people of Nigeria, people like myself who were, you know, we never experienced a civil war. We never grew up in that era. I was born in 1990. This was ancient history by the time I was born. We just saw a competent administrator who could be a good leader. But for the people from older generations, there are all these issues which still exist in their minds, which continue to be a factor in the political equation. So for some people, it was, oh, he comes from this part of the country, so under no circumstances must he you know, get into that seat. So there's all sorts of complications <laughs> making it such that it's very difficult for, for Nigeria as a country to sort of evolve a common vision for what it even imagines Nigeria should look like in the future. So if you ask someone, I'm from Lagos, the it's in the southwest, the largest city in Nigeria. So if you had to ask me what my vision for Nigeria ideally should be over the next 30 to 50 years, I could spend an hour talking about things that I would like to see, certain types of infrastructure investments and how you know the sectors that the government should focus on, um, direct investment that should be made in education and healthcare, um, changes in law. I could tell you all of these things. But if you ask someone in Kano, which is in the northwest, What's their vision for Nigeria in the next 30, 50 years? They'll tell you something completely different because they come from a completely different context where the, the primary consideration is, for many of them, um, the religion, you know, which is a particularly conservative form of Islam, which, you know, by and large, doesn't tend to coexist well with, with its neighbors. So there's, there, there are those issues. If you had asked someone from Onitsha, which is in the Southeast, what's their vision for Nigeria? They'll probably give you a different answer as well. So um, Nigeria is essentially three or four countries um, struggling <laughs> to um, to um, fight each other, but it's one sort of nation state. So internally, it's, it's never really worked. Externally, obviously, the world only sees a bunch of Africans from West Africa. We're all one nationality. We all carry one green passport. Internally, it's a lot more complicated. So um, unless there is a, there's a significant sort of um, social and mental revolution that takes place, whereby the young people who are by far the majority of the country's population, as much as 70% of the country's population, decide that they want a break from the past, and that whatever the British did or didn't do, whatever the Amadou Bellos and the you know Ojukus, whatever, whatever happened between the 1950s and the 1970s, all of that doesn't concern us now because we live in 2023. Our lives are a certain way now. We want to move forward into the future, and this is what we want. Until that happens, it's going to be very unlikely that Nigeria will coalesce around a sort of you know charismatic figure, a sort of Lee Kuan Yew or Kwame Nkrumah or Nelson Mandela. It's unlikely. It's not impossible because, I mean, we've seen the emergence of Peter Obi, which was not supposed to happen. So I think we're already seeing the green shoots 
some sort of hope. However, as I said earlier, it's up to the young Nigerians themselves to take this to the end. Because I think we've used the system as far as the system is willing to let us take it to. We, you know, we're told after the protest movement, we're told, don't protest, go, you know, form yourselves into a political formation, line up behind the candidates. We've done that and we actually won the election and the result was taken from us. We went to court, which is what you were supposed to do. And the court has ruled that, well, it's the gun that shot the people, not the person holding it. So at this point, I think it's the, it's the Nigerians themselves who then have to look at the situation and say, okay, we've, we've, we've done everything we're supposed to do. We've played by the rules and clearly this, the rules are not designed to work. So now we have to work outside the rules. We have to rebel against the system because the system is designed to keep us in a certain way. So until they make that decision, um, we will keep on having this conversation, unfortunately. Well, keep us informed, and I wish you uh, the very best and the people or peoples of Nigeria the very best. Thank you, David Hundian, for your expert testimony. Keep an eye on the judiciary. Turned out to be a bit of a waste of time. There's a caller on the line from Moscow, Alexander on the line, just been to Donbass. I don't know who Alexander is or whether I'm committing any kind of offense in talking to him, but I'm going to do it anyway. Alexander, welcome to the mother of all talk shows. Tell us, you've just been to Donbass. In what capacity? Uh, well, I've actually uh, studied in Washington, D.C., interned in U.S. Congress, uh, and then being a Russian, I uh, declined U.S. citizenship came back to Russia, and since 2014, I have been going to Donbass, uh, trying to, you know, spread the word about this, uh, the, the war that's been going on, not since 2022, but since 2014, uh, since the illegal uh, coup in Kiev. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, an American citizen who has lived in Crimea for decades, has suggested that I uh, talk to you and uh, try to... Uh, let your uh, viewers and listeners know about what well, is actually uh, going on on the ground yeah. down there. <clears throat> well, uh, you're quite a find, uh, someone uh, from your background uh, who's Russian but knows the United States uh, and is in the theater of operations or just has been, uh, is uh, definitely a find for us. So I'm glad that you called and thanks uh, to your friend in the Crimea. What did you find that you would like to tell us uh, on your most recent visit? Well, um, being um, a Russian citizen, as I said, I've studied in the States. Uh, my mother is actually from Donbass. So my family, my mother's side of the family, um, has lived there for decades, uh, all being um, labeled in Soviet passports as Ukrainian, but uh, all Russian speakers. And what happened was when the war began in 2014, some of them were on the side that uh, with the separatists, and some of them were on the side that um, you know was under Ukraine. And uh, when I went there recently, uh, I went to the towns that uh, you know Russia conquered, or as they think that Russia liberated. And honestly, I have never heard more praise 
towards the uh, the Russian soldiers than uh, in in those areas of Ukraine that that uh, recently uh, came under Russian control. People there for eight years. They lived in situations. This is a story that I was uh, told by by a doctor uh, who is a good friend of mine uh, back in 2014. Azov Battalion, the uh, the obviously absolutely not not Nazis, but they have a Nazi symbol on them. Um, they were stationed in the town uh, and uh, they got drunk and uh, decided to uh, have some joyriding in the city. Uh, crashed headfirst into a car with uh, civilians, killed an entire family. Um, what happened then was uh, this person, the, the captain of the Azov Battalion, was taken to this uh, a friend of mine who's a surgeon in the city and they did their best to save him but uh, he had to be uh, uh, transported by helicopter to Kiev later and um, what they told us is that a few days later on Ukrainian TV they saw him being buried with heroes uh, in a heroic ceremony fighting the evil Russians this is a guy who stole a car got drunk killed a family and uh, this, this this is how they presented them, and these these are the stories I've heard uh, multiple times over there. Uh, it's it's tragic what has been going on because these people have been living uh, in fear for the last eight years, and uh, they have to live in even more fear now because when Ukraine started pushing back a year ago, um, they because they are Russian speakers, they're ethnic Russians, they fear that they will just be ethnically cleansed. Um, so that's that. That's one story I can tell you from actually being there. Well, and uh, yeah, it's it's actually the only story we'll have time for tonight. But make sure we know how to reach you, Alexander. I would very much like to hear from you in subsequent shows uh, at more length. I need to clear the lines. It's not everybody. In fact, it's hardly anybody who gets to celebrate their 62nd wedding anniversary. But our legend, Norma, in Bristol, is doing just that. Happy anniversary, Norma, from everybody at the Mother of All Talk Shows. And I'm sure everybody in our worldwide audience, all praying that the two of you can spend more time together uh, after your recent uh, health uh, travails. Happy anniversary to you. Thank you, George. Hello, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, very clearly. Oh, good. Yes. No, actually, thank you very much. But the thing is, um, our future together is really in the balance because um, it's a case of um, wait and see. Um, big decisions are going to have to be um, made soon, and we don't know what on earth is going to happen. But we did, um, I, I did take a tiny little bottle of wine in to the hospital yesterday, but the nurses wouldn't let us have it, so I, I just had to give him a big kiss instead. <laughs> well, I'd rather have a big kiss than a bottle of wine, but then I don't drink alcohol. But the, uh, the situation is that he's in hospital, you're at home, you're yeah. not able to look after him if and when they let him come home. Uh, and have you explored all possible avenues of, uh, no, of uh, help no. in the house? 
Are there all possible avenues of what? Help. Yes, but you see, he cannot walk. He has so many things wrong with him. So he's going to go to, oh, not the moment, but rehabilitation place. It's like a hospital to see if they can get him to walk. If they can't, I can't look after him. But, George, I do think this is funny. I know it's not funny. My situation has been very stressed. But somebody did say earlier um, about they quoted a cute little elderly lady. I'm thinking about what that other lady About the queen. About. Well, maybe it was, yeah. But I think this, this is me, a cute little sad elderly lady at the moment. <laughs> Not funny, I know, but that's why. Right. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, God bless you and your husband, and may you celebrate further anniversaries, even though 62 is a very historic number indeed, as is 2100 hours. Alas, that's all uh, that I've got time for. Uh, there's much uh, that I would like to say, but the further I run on the show, the more money it's going to cost me, and I know you wouldn't want that. But the good news is, God willing, I'll be back on Wednesday for the midweek Mother of All talk shows at the slightly later hour of 9 p.m. So the task for each and every one of you is to get an additional viewer. Just think, do the maths. The people who are watching, they all bring one more viewer. Just think. We'd be knocking so-called mainstream media deeper and deeper into a cocked hat. Thanks for watching. Good night.